0: Wow, can you believe it's season five already? We're absolutely amazed that we've lasted nearly five seasons. So in this episode, we're going to hear all about a great Southern African birding destination for the more adventurous at heart. We will also find out everything we need to know about the latest Southern African photographic bird guide that was recently released. This is the Birding Life Podcast. Keep birds looking great and full of life this winter with Westermans' new wild bird winter mix. Wild birds need a good source of fat and energy to survive the cold winter months. This winter mix has been especially created to provide them with a source of nutrition and energy when natural food sources are scarce. Available at various pet and lifestyle retailers across South Africa, online and in-store. Westmans for the love of Of birds. My name is Adam, and this podcast is your weekly source of news about birds, birders, conservation, gear, books, and well, anything that we think birders will want to hear about. So, welcome to the show. We love hearing from listeners of the show from both South Africa and around the world. We recently received an email from Kimberly, who listens to the show all the way from Pacifica, California. She is part of a master birding class at the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco. And she told us that after sharing some of her favorite episodes with her classmates, that they have also started listening to the show. So a big shout out to Kimberly and her classmates. We can't wait to hear more about your birding adventures. One of the easiest ways that you can help us to grow the show is to follow Kimberly's example and tell somebody else about the show. So if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell someone else about it. Oh, and drop us a direct message on any of our social media platforms or send us an email and tell us where you listen to the show from. We would love to get to know you better. So our first guest this week is Leon Murray from Lawson's Birding, Wildlife, and Custom Safaris. And he's going to be telling us all about a recent birding trip he did to Maputu National Park. Lawson's Birding, Wildlife and Custom Safaris offers first class birding and wildlife trips to a range of countries in southern and eastern Africa. Contact them today to set up the safari of a lifetime. We'll pop a link in the notes to the show or head on over to our website, www.thebirdinglife.com, and click on the Accommodation and Guides tab, and you'll be able to find out more information about Lawson's Birding. So, Let's hear from Leon. So Leon, in the May-June edition of the African BirdLife magazine, you wrote an article on Maputo National Park in Mozambique. Now, I was interested with this article. And the reason I find it very interesting was I heard a well-known bird. I won't mention the bird's name. They spoke about Maputo National Park and they said it's not really a destination that will appeal to a lot of South African birders because a lot of the species you get in the park, you can get in South Africa. So in your opinion, what is what makes Maputo National Park a destination that South African birders should visit?
1: Yeah, well, that was kind of the thrust of my article. Was uh, I called it adventure birding? So for sure, I mean, you can go to stay in St Lucia and the Isimangaliso Park, and and you know all those Maputo Land reserves, and it's yeah the same birds and, and a lot easier. But uh, yeah, you know, everybody's done that basically. So a lot of birders out there are looking for something new and a lot of birders are also the four by four type enthusiasts, you know, they don't have to be the most serious birders. And and there's a whole new world in Maputo National Park, you know, pack your four by four and go a little bit off the beaten track. And, you know, the birding, you know, there have been surveys there and, and of course birders, but it's it's probably very underbirded. So you never know what you might, might find. So yeah, a lot of the same species, but uh, just a, a, a different area and something exciting.
0: So let me ask the elephant in the room for a lot of birders. What is the safety like in uh, Mozambique at the moment?
1: Uh, in my experience, it was it was perfectly fine. Um, there were no issues. I'd, I was fortunate that I went on a sort of organized trip. So I self-drove, but it was part of a, a bigger group. So I had kind of... Uh, someone not quite holding my hand but sort of showing you the ropes through the borders, et cetera. But it was pretty easy. Uh, I think, uh, And I mean, from spread a lot of people, well, COVID changed it a bit, but it'll probably get back to where it was. But people are always go- going back and forth. So once you're through the border, it's pretty easy. There yeah, are always reports about uh, traffic cops giving you hassles and you know stopping you and, and trying to elicit money out of you. We didn't have any of that. So it was basically plain sailing. Uh, we didn't have any issues at all. So, I
0: saw in your article that in 1960 the reserve was proclaimed as the Special Elephant Reserve, and in 1969 it was renamed the Maputo Special Reserve to highlight the conservation of the entire ecosystem rather than just its largest land-dwelling inhabitants. So obviously, the reserve is not just great for birders. We'll talk about the birds in a moment. But uh, is it also a great spot to see mammal species? Obviously, elephant must be there. But what other mammal species did you manage to see in the park?
1: Uh, we we did yeah, We elephants we saw, but not that well, to be honest. They, they seem to be a little bit shy still. Um, we saw a nice range of antelope. We didn't see any predators but uh, i think if i remember correctly they've they've started reintroducing some of the predators so we did yeah I, in my experience one visit which is, so it's not uh, not a, a lot of experience but it was mainly just antelopes so it wasn't really that sort of uh, off the charts as a mammal destination by any means but for me the nicest thing is the environment just absolutely stunning and then it was a short trip we didn't get to all the spots but some of those Estuaries on the coast are just absolutely, absolutely stunning. And the fishing potential is is huge for the, the fishermen among us.
0: I think that's what makes birding so amazing. You know, I've I've been to Kruger, I've been to a lot of these Shishluwe National Reserve, I've been to a lot of these places, and you get to the camp at the end of the day and you speak to people and you say, How how was your day? And they're like, Oh, it was so quiet, we saw nothing. And then you start rattling off the birds you've seen. And it's amazing that there's destinations that are not as popular possibly as mammal destinations but as birders there's just an attraction to them and i think this is what makes birding so amazing you know you birds are all around us and a lot of these places that might not have the that, that mammal attraction straight away as a birder there's something amazing there's something almost magnetic about some of these places
1: yeah definitely i mean and that's that's the whole beauty of birding you you never stop birding. I mean, yes, you, you sort of pack the car and put the binoculars and go out birding somewhere, but you know, for most of most birders, you're doing it all the time. Whether you at work or just going to the shops, you seeing what's around and and keeping your eye open for anything unusual. So yeah, the birding is a great excuse to get into some beautiful places. And yeah, if they don't have the big mammals, you know, birders don't really care. I mean, I've had many birders who, you know, on a let's say Kruger National Park trip and you mentioned something oh, there's someone's found lions they're like oh, okay well now they'd rather go look for birds somewhere so our yeah, birders we're a different breed and, and we don't need the big game to keep us occupied which is great
0: yeah and the funny thing is when you drive to places there's a normal person will say it's going to take me this long to get to the place as a birder you actually plan extra time because you're aware that every drive you in there's the potential of another species. I was actually driving somewhere the one day and driving through the neighborhood, uh, driving along, and all of a sudden, I saw this bird. I mean, just driving. I'm just doing normal driving like it was in a, re- a residential area. It wasn't on the freeway or anything. And I saw this bird flying across, and I said, I'm sure that's a, sure a hornbill. And I pulled over, had a quick look. I, you know, you always have your binoculars in the car. Put the binoculars up, and it was a crowned hornbill, which was a new bird for the Pentad for this year. So even just in normal driving, you kind of have this thing where you allocate more time because there might just be a birding opportunity and where people go somewhere, you know, you stop past the river, you hop out for five minutes, have a quick scan across, is there anything showing? And it's, it's like, you know, we talk about this all the time. Birding is not just a hobby. It's not just something we do. It literally starts to change Everything you know, you go to a restaurant and you're eating with people, and you're like, you, you're aware of the birds that are around. I mean, it, it's it's crazy, birders are nuts.
1: Yeah, birding is like breathing, it's like you're never not doing it, <laughs> you're always birding. And yeah, like you say, suddenly a hornbill there and it hasn't been recorded before. And and I mean, that the more and more birders out there, and that's why the you know, the national list or the regional lists are going up all the time because people are always alert. Uh, maybe always have binoculars in the car, at least. So yeah, birding is like breathing; you are just never not doing it.
0: So back to Maputo National Park, diverted a bit there. Well, that's cool. That's what this podcast all about—just stories is cool. I uh, saw some of the photos. G- got a blue cheeked bee eater, beautiful, stunning bird. Caspian tern. There was southern yellow white eye, uh, great white pelican, and a stunning rhea trogan. That was some of the birds uh, that were photographed that were featured in the article. So, what are some? Uh, of the special birds that birders would want would possibly want to see in the in the park.
1: Yeah, basically, I guess that you compare it to the to the same set of sort of Southeast African specials that you would find or be looking for. Let's say if you went to St Lucia, you know, your a uh Livingston's turaco. I'm trying to, th- you know, grey sunbird, purple banded sunbird, near gods possibly, or even maybe plain backed sunbird. And that's quite a special one. Um, Mangrove kingfisher along the coast, uh, green malkoa, even rosy-throated longclaw, I guess, around the floodplain edges. So a lot of them would be the same ones that you're on the lookout for in in comparable areas in South Africa. On the coast, maybe even crab plover on occasion would be a bit of a a rarity, but uh, it's definitely possible.
0: Now, some really fantastic birds. I mean, crap lover is one of those birds that I really, really want to see. And, you know, like again, the potential of vagrants. I mean, I often, you know, read the reports. Uh, you know, Gary Allport writes a lot of lot of times about the the, the, the species that they're getting to see. And Mozambique's a fantastic destination to see waders, So, you know, you know, there's always the opportunity, always the chance of seeing a vagrant species there.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, As I say, I mean, crab plover would be, it's definitely not an everyday thing, but you just never know, and you've got to be there to see them, you know, and that's the thing, you know, places in South Africa are birded very heavily, you know, St. Lucia, Kruger, you know, everyone's birding there all the time, but I guess in Maputo National Park, you know, there are birders around, you live in Mozambique and, and probably visit it, and there's a local guide operating there, Simba, um, but it's just not as heavily birded. And if, you know, also you don't want too many people, I guess, but um, birders, at least that's okay. But the more birders there are, the more birds are going to get found and, you know, turn up all these specials from now on for time and time again.
0: It's quite funny how you differentiated there. We we don't have lots of people there, but birders, they're okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, birders are okay. You know, birders are generally low-key. They, they don't make noise and they respect the environment so nothing wrong i guess
0: you wrote in the article a little bit about the the fact that there is accommodation options available and you obviously spoke about the fact that this is a little bit more adventurous which is which is for me is very appealing but for those who might not be as adventurous, what is the what what is the infrastructure like in the reserve, and what are some of the accommodation available? Accommodation options available. As far as I know, there was a lodge that was being built, and I think there's camping options available right now. You know what sort of infrastructure is there in the park right now?
1: We were kind of a, a pioneering group. We were sort of I was with uh, some guys from media, magazines, etc., and we were there to be the first sort of tourists to experience the campsites that they've, they've just opened. So they've got uh, a number of beautifully designed campsites with, you know, proper ablution blocks. Uh, they've got flush toilets, running water, etc. So that's not roughing it really too much, although they do have these sort of adventure four-by-four four camps, which have basically nothing. But like if you go to some of the places in Botswana, you know, you're off the beaten track where you need to supply own water and all that. So and, and they're busy building I had a progress update a few months ago so they, they're going quite well with uh, chalets and restaurants at a few sites so it's going to be a very beautifully designed sort of eco-friendly chalets that really blend in beautifully with the environment and as far as I know with the restaurants and everything so small they're not going to be huge camps uh, I guess a bit like a really modern Kruger Nation, small Kruger National Park camp and uh, so, yeah, they're working on those. I'm not sure where they are at the moment. And then there's a couple of really high-end lodges. There's one called Anvil Bay uh, on the beach, and there's another one, I think. So that's those are, yeah, that's beyond the budget of most birders, I would say, but beautiful lodgings right on the beach. So there's pretty much a variety from from camping all the way through to fancy lodges. Um, of course, it's it's four-wheel drive only, so that's that's the adventure part. Is you need a 4x4 four four to get to these places, which makes it exciting. We were there in, in June, and it, was, it wasn't it was that hard driving. It was basically sand. You had to uh, deal with a bit of sand, you know, put your tires down and go for it. But in, in summer, I could see in some areas the, the, when the floodplains fill up and get muddy, that could be quite challenging. So for those who like a challenge, a summer visit there would be interesting.
0: Yeah, and I can imagine with the infrastructure improving and that the more birders and the more people that go and visit the park, the fantastic, the good thing about that in the long run is that conservation ultimately wins because if no one's visiting the park and the park is derelict and falling to pieces, the reality is is conservation ultimately loses out. So I just think from that perspective, it's good for birders to support locations like Paputa National Park so that in the long run, birds and even mammals are conserved.
1: Yeah, definitely. Without the visitors, you know, it can't work. So so their whole, I think it's African Parks is involved. So they're putting in a lot of money and effort. You know they've, over the years relocated and, and reintroduced a lot of animals to get the game numbers up because a lot of visitors, like we said earlier, they want to see the game. So you know that always adds it's, it's, uh, an attraction. But yeah, you need the people. Without the people, it can't work. But you know it's it's a, such a nice destination because you can tag it on with, you know, a couple of beach. Beach stops um, quite easily, so it's it's a bit of everything, kind of bush and beach, yeah. And it's from from either the the Cozy Bay border post or here close to Nelspruit. It's not that far, you know. It's a few hours drive, and you're there, so it's it's readily accessible as well.
0: Yeah, I think these type of destinations are fantastic because obviously Mozambique is just on our doorstep, and you know, for a road trip up, it'll be a fantastic uh, mini holiday. So, Leon, I thank you so much. I know this isn't a destination that you necessarily are an expert on, but I really appreciate your input. It's great to learn more about it. And I do encourage uh, more birders to go and check out Maputa National Park. And if you have visited us or if you have visited the park, drop us an email and let us know about your experiences. We'd love to hear more about what you, how you found the park and what you got to experience. So, Leon, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: No, oh, thank you, Adam. It's been a pleasure. Like you say, I'm not the expert on it. I've been once, but I'm, I'm glad I have been there. And I mean, the past always saw it on the map and wondered about it, what does it look like? You know, how, what's it like? And it's nice to have actually been there. The
0: Birding Life is proud to be associated with Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lesser bird logging app. Spot, plot, play a part download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. One of the ways that you can help us to keep putting out the content that we are releasing is by supporting our online shop. We sell optics, books, Westermans products, and a whole lot more. Check out the shop on the website, www.thebirdinglife.com. If you need help or have any questions about any of the products, please don't hesitate to email us on info at thebirdinglife.com. We'd love to help you where we can. Our next guest is Karin Wiesler, who is one of the authors of one of the most anticipated bird books, Birds of Southern Africa, The Complete Photographic Guide. The interview not only tells us all about the book, but also gives us a fascinating insight into the process of putting together a book, as well as finding out more about Karin's own birding journey. As with many of the books that are featured on the podcast, birds of southern africa the complete photographic guide is available on our online store so head on over to the website and get your hands on a copy so now to hear from corin i start the interview by asking her to tell us a little bit more about herself
2: i birding rather late in life which is most unfortunate because I think of all those places I visited when I was younger and when I could have been birding. I mean in fact my honeymoon would have been so different <laughs> if I had been a birder but I mean rather late than ever. The one thing is, I've always loved wildlife and I loved visiting the bush and things, but uh, birds weren't actually the focus of the visit. I mean, it was always looking for the big and hairy. You know, I enjoyed things like a, a martial Eagle or a nice LBR lilac breasted roller, but I didn't even look at the LBJs, they just didn't feature. So, but all this started to change in the early 2000s. My husband, Rolf, he travelled a lot for work and I was looking to do something other with my time. So I persuaded my mom to join me um, for an evening course. It was uh, uh, about two weeks. We went on the Sappy Monty Brett Beginners Birding Course and it was great fun. And then from there, we joined a, a birding club but our birding was very, very casual, you know, sort of maybe once every three months we'd go out. But this all changed in about 2006 when Rolf and I joined a birding trip to the Kalahari, and we loved everything about that trip. I mean, those owls, the, the eagles. I mean, we weren't even looking at all the big and, hair, uh, big and hairies. I mean, it was just so amazing. And I could say from that time, 2006, I really became a birder. And uh, after that, all our trips and most of our holidays were actually arranged about around what birds we hoped to see. And I can say now that... F- for me, birding is more than just an enjoyable hobby. It's really a passion. And, uh, you know, any chance I get, I'm out there birding.
0: When we were chatting and preparing for this, you also mentioned that you are a twitcher. Tell us about some of the twitches you've been on. I'm sure you've got to see some of these these really cool birds recently.
2: Oh, of course. I mean, wood warbler. I mean, (laughs) I was so worried that it was going to disappear before we got a chance, but it was there and uh, amazing. But, you know, as, as amazing as uh, getting to see the birds, there's all these other disastrous trips where you you go and you dip and you say, I'm not going to do that again. And uh, when the next one arrives, it's, no, I'm not going, I'm not going and you end up going. <laughs> and and it's, it's just such a thrill when you do get to see them. I mean, my our first Twitch was actually in 2010 for the first golden pippet that arrived in Pangola. And just wow, 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 wow. I mean, that, that's really what got us going with the, the twitching side. Because then my, my husband became an avid twitcher too. Before that, he wasn't really interested in uh, traveling more than 200 k's to see a bird. But after that, he was happy then to travel with me.
0: What really fascinates me is the fact that you've been a part of this book, and we're going to talk about this book in a moment, but, you know, you're a big part of writing the text for it, the text part of the book. And what interests me is the fact that you said you started birding at a much later stage in your life, yet you you seem to have almost been able to grasp identification features and all of this at, like, where a lot of people say you have to almost be young to start to grab that. You know, what, what did that look like? How did you... Grow yourself as a birder to get to the place where you know maybe within a shorter amount of time than somebody else might have done. You're able to be a part of a book like this.
2: Being in uh, becoming a birder late in life probably actually helped with the text because you you're not so engaged with the the small things. You want to look at what is easy. You know, you, you start to focus on what are the key features? What makes a barbit a barbit? We, we don't want to know about the supercilium and the white outer tail feathers and things. Yes, those are key features. But why is that bird that bird? What makes a, a lapwing a lapwing versus um, something smaller like a, a, a A sandling, for example, and uh, I think that's what a birder, a novice birder, needs to get to grips with first. You know, just being able to group them correctly, and from there you can then drill down and saying, okay, I'm here now. What species am I looking at? Because I think we're too quick to go directly through to a species without explaining. Well. You know, this is a buzzard, not an eagle, for example, because a, a, a novice bird will look at a, a bird and will just say, oh, there's a hawk, and not even know where to go in, in a bird book. So you need to explain to them, okay, you are now looking at an eagle for this reason, because it's got these fully feathered legs or it's got bare legs. Let's see how we can progress from there. Um, you need to start at a higher level. Don't just jump directly into species level because that just loses the novice birders. I think that's where the Monty Brett course helped because they pitched it right from the beginning with jizz and saying, you know, these, this is what you needed to look at before you even started to try and get to species level.
0: Yeah, and I think that's great advice, you know, for, I know there's a lot of people who listen to this uh, podcast who are newer birders, and I think that's really good advice is, you know, is that idea of grouping birds first. I mean, I've always used mm-hmm. the example, and I mean, the one example, if most people, if you said to them, if they saw a, a dove, they would they they would know that that's a dove. They might not know it's a, a laughing dove or a yeah. ringneck dove or something, but they'd know it's a dove. And I think as soon as you can you can get it into a grouping of birds. Straight away your your I've always said that your bird book becomes smaller. Instead of having to page through every single page, you're able to go to those specific species. And I think, you know, the 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 shape and the behavior, you know, like oftentimes like chats can be quite tricky because they don't a yeah. lot of them are like kind of nondescript. There's not much on them. They're just kind of like these plain drab birds a lot of them (laughs) but 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 the thing about a a thing about a chat is it's got a very distinctive shape it's got a distinctive behavior it's got a distinctive stance and when you start getting that stuff together you might see a chat and not know which chat it is but immediately you're able to start to get it into a grouping and I think that's really fantastic advice for anyone that's starting off in birding
2: yeah. No, well, that's the only way to do it. Don't try jump to species. Rather, go to the group and, uh, you know, little steps and say, OK, yes, here yeah, we have a dove or we, we have an eagle. And then you can drill down to the nitty gritty. So, and I think that's where this book helps, too, because we have tried to group uh, the birds um, in a way that uh, a novice birder can find something and relate to it, you know, a, a swimming water bird or a flying water bird, or, you know, we've, we've and I think that's one of the, the, things that differentiates this book from other books is the way we've grouped
0: them. Yeah, almost if you look at the grouping that you've done in the book, it's very similar to like the the Ken Newman kind of style. He had that very, Mm. he also had that very, that style that made birding very accessible to newer birders. And I love it. I mean, you're talking about that, you know, you've got swimming water birds and birds of prey, fruit eaters, nectar eaters, insectivores catching prey in Flight, I try to say that word on a podcast but all these you have really simplified it down and I think it's, it makes it a lot easier to find the bird the birds in the book.
2: Yes. Well, originally it started with Roberts and in Roberts order that was now a challenge. <laughs> and not to say that Roberts Roberts is an excellent excellent field guide. But uh, when you're a novice birder, it was a challenge trying to find something in, uh, novice, uh, in, in Roberts. And, yeah, Newman's was a far more user-friendly guide. When, and, yeah, I think this is just a, a follow-on from those early guides.
0: So, Corin, you know one thing. When whenever I get to review books, I'm always very conscious of the fact that um, behind every book that I have in my hand, and I've got the Birds of Southern Africa book in my hand. It's a fantastic book, but behind every book, there's 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 blood, sweat, and tears. A lot of work that's gone into it. I'm always very conscious of taking that into account when. When you review a book and i remember all the way back in 2019 pre covid time ready neil Celia was sending me mm-hmm. messages ask me for for photos that he could use on the app so this book has taken a long time to put together so tell us a little bit about the process that went into putting together the book
2: yes you're right about that long time in fact uh, it was right back in august 2018 when uh, burger pitched this idea um, you know, he has a lot of experience and authored a lot of books, and he identified a gap in the market um, for a complete and up-to-date photographic guide, especially one that could link through to bird calls, because that was a, a very new idea back in, in 2018. And yeah, unfortunately, COVID um, hit, which did uh, impact on, on the book because for at least a year, very little happened, at least in terms of uh, moving forward. There maybe, you know, sourcing photographs and things happened, but, you know, it sort of came to a halt. But uh, we can't blame COVID for everything, because it really is a lot of work putting this book together. I mean, I, I wasn't very involved in in that. I, I just did my, my text. But, I mean, I know... Somebody like Neil, he had to go around sourcing all these photographs. And I mean, it wasn't just any photograph. He had to go and find the perfect photograph. I mean, he had to make up these distribution uh, maps, looking at all the SABAP data and uh, um, everything that went into that. He had to come up with a whole layout, which I think must have been a, a challenge in itself. And uh, I mean, the other people like uh, Burger. I mean, he was also drafting text. And, uh, and uh, then after that, he had to take all the text. He and Hender, who was our project manager, had to translate in everything into Afrikaans. I mean, you can imagine what a big task that was to get that translation done. Because that was very important um, for the team, that this book be available in Afrikaans. So yes, a lot of work went into to this book.
0: When I was chatting to you earlier, we were chatting about the that the fact that I spoke to you about the fact that you were involved in the text part of it, and that was your obviously your um, your main part of this project. Mm. And you told me a little bit about the story of how the the initial group of birds that you were asked to write about, and then how Trevor Horeker got to be involved in the project. Tell us a little bit about oh, that story.
2: Oh, yes. Yeah, we, we were allocated chunks uh, of text. And uh, most of what I got given, I was very happy to to work with because I understand it's bushfowl birds, and uh, you know, I've seen these birds, so I, I know them well, and I could bring something of myself into to the text, which was important. But I was also allocated pelagic birds. And I thought, okay, this is not uh, too much of a problem. So I did all my research. And my main resources were Peter Harrison and Peter Ryan. And uh, I I produced text. But, you know, I, I couldn't bring anything more to the text than what was already out there. You know, having gone on a couple of pelagics doesn't actually qualify me to write about pelagic birds. I mean, I was just regurgitating what was already out there. And uh, I, I think when the text was being checked and things, and uh, I also expressed my reservations about it, I said, you know, really, I, I'm just not adding real value. Um, they recruited Trevor to the, the project team. And I think it was fantastic because he could really bring something different. I mean, he's out there most weekends looking at these birds. And uh, that's what you need um, for an identification guide. You need somebody with that experience um, that knows the birds and uh, at a glance who will say, well, this is what makes um, the, this petrel that species versus another species. So, yes, that's how Trevor uh, got involved with the project. He was brought on to rewrite my text.
0: So, looking on the cover, there's, um, there were some really fantastic people involved in this book, almost the who's who of birding in South Africa. So, tell us about the role that different people played in putting together this book.
2: Well, I think uh, we have our, our authors, like myself, um and uh, we've spoken about Trevor. But I mean, there were other people that had roles and I think I've already mentioned with Berger, besides being an author, he translated everything and Neil going through and having to source all the photographs and uh, create these distribution maps. But even people that don't feature on the cover of the book were integral into the production of this book. I mean, Henda is a project manager. I, I don't envy her task because, I mean, she really had to pull everything together. And uh, I think she had to endure a few tantrums, especially when it came to rewrites and, you know, trying to hit this moving target. Uh, I think she was a saint, um, <laughs> you know, and... Uh, when it came to to um, the publishers as well, you know, the editor had to now try and standardise everything because we've all got our own writing style. I mean, we were writing two headings and we uh, fitted our text, but there had to be some sort of continuity. And uh, the I think the editor did a... a great job in doing that. I mean, you can still see that there's there's differences in the way people write, but I think it does flow. There's, there's not just chunks and you can say, okay, that Corin wrote and that Trevor wrote. The, it, it flows. So um, I, I think the, the people in the background did a fantastic job. And uh, even this translation of the book, wow, what a job.
0: And then give us a glimpse into behind the scenes. So you were involved in the tech side of things. You know, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to to read through the book and, you know, to see the amount of work that went into it. Give us a little bit of an insight into what the process looked like in putting the text to, together from, the you know, from that beginning stage till where it is right now. How did that process look like for you?
2: Well, I was given my birds, allocated my birds, So you go out and you start researching them, which was great fun, um, reading up and writing about the birds. And initially we weren't given a a word count, so we we didn't have an idea of the layout or anything. So we, we did chunks of text, and then once... Neil and Berger had an idea of how the book was actually going to look. And they came back and said, "Okay, now we need to break down the text into the the different headings. You know, we need a a description, uh, possible confusions, cover a little bit about habitat. You know, if there's differences between the sexes. Um, different colour morphs, um, ages, subspecies. You needed to cover all of that. So, so that helped. So we could then start chunking this down. And uh, they said you have to be concise. Okay, now concise and me don't go together. I'm one for long-winded responses and writing and things so I had to do some serious serious editing on my work and that's why I said you know I think Henda had to put up a lot with uh, tantrums around how are we supposed to get what we need to say in this word count because you really it's not very much space for the amount you want to write and just get in and that and you say no but I want to write more about this how can I know you got to get this cut it down what's what's key and uh, I think that's those headings and having Henda on the case was what actually got us to that point of this is what is important and this is what needs to be in the book so yes lots of um, blood sweat and tears but it was a lot of fun uh, you know, any chance to go and read up about birds, I'm happy. And uh, in the process, I learned so much. You know, even the text of mine that wasn't used, you know, it hasn't gone to waste because it's there. It's knowledge that I can pull out at some stage.
0: Something I've really enjoyed about the book, which I find very refreshing... And we've spoken about how the book has been put together into the different groupings to make it accessible. But you know you spoke about the the headings, so there's description, possible confusion, behaviour, habitat, and or, and and what I liked about, especially the behaviour section, just the way that the text is put together, it's put together in a very simple way. it's the it's easy to understand, and and a lot of sometimes field guides, can be quite weighty and you know you have to kind of sit with mm. the field guide in one hand and the dictionary in the other hand and by the time you finish there you're still confused. I love the fact it's concise. Like you said, there's there's, there's I'll say this, there's other field guides with more information. But this this year is probably the information is easier to understand. And I just think it's it's been well put together in terms of the simplicity of the field guide.
2: I think that's what was important right from word go. You know those initial meetings we spoke about what is important what needs to be there in order to identify the bird uh, you know this is a, a photographic guide and um, it was never meant to come and replace something like the 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 big Roberts or anything this is you know quick and easy let's get to ID the bird what is important and uh, I think we've all tried to keep that in mind um, when we wrote our text especially when the whole editing process came in and you know let's simplify what's important you know if behavior is important let's put it there because so often you identify the bird more on behavior then you know that it's got white outer tail feathers for example you know that that's what is the bird doing how let's let's get there what what is it going to make it easy um for the user of the book so i'm glad you you like that because a lot of thought went into that and uh kudos for for the team for coming up with that
0: Something that really stands out in this book, and it's obviously a good thing, the fact that it is a photographic guide, is the quality of the photos. I think this is, you know, we're living in an age where the technology, camera technology is really advanced, like big time, and it can be seen in the photos. And really, you know, from beginning to end, you just go through the photos, and the photos are breathtaking. I mean, this is the mm. best of the best you're going to get. There were nearly two thousand photos that were selected for the book. I know this was, I think, very much Neil Salir's, um yes. responsibility. What, what, how, how were photos chosen? You know, because you know we we're living in an era where you go to Facebook, and for every picture of an African puppet, there's a thousand good pictures <laughs> out there. So how how did how did he how did he narrow it down and decide which were the pictures that should be included in the book?
2: Well, I think. Uh... I think you've hit the nail on the head there that Neil was the driving force behind the photos. And I think, uh, I mean, he started with his own extensive collection of pictures because, I mean, he, he's always there with his camera. He's always photographing birds and things. And uh, he's always after the perfect shot. So I think that's the standard that he was wanting every other photograph to aspire to. Um, Right back in the beginning, he also asked his friends to share pictures with him. And uh, there, people like Hugh Chitterden and uh, Helmut Niebu really came to the party because they just handed over their databases, basically, so he could choose pictures from there. And then, he, as you say, you could look at Facebook and Instagram, and I think he started to look there and handpick pictures. Pictures and then approached the photographers and asked if these uh, birds could be used in the book but I mean how how the the pictures were chosen was really on could you ID the bird in the shot I mean each photo had to show all the unique features of the bird I mean, is the colour correct? So the, the photograph had to be taken in good light with no uh, background encroaching on, on the picture. Um, does the whole bird appear? And uh, preferably it needs to be clear with the, the head in focus. And I mean, even the stance of the bird was important, you know, preferably that it's looking up. So you, you could really... See the bird. I mean, there's a lot of amazing bird photos out there, but they don't help with identification. You needed that perfect shot to show the ID of the bird. And uh, I I think he he did a great job in in choosing those identification photos. I think um, each and every photo actually displays something important. Um, when identifying a bird.
0: Now, one of the things in the book, obviously because of the constraints of printing costs and that, there's only two pictures per species account, but there's also an app that works works together with the book. So tell us about the app and how it enhances the user's experience.
2: Well, I think the the BirdsCam app really does complement the book because as you've mentioned, there's nearly 2,000 photos in the book and there's another couple of thousand photos uh, in the app which shows uh, variations of the bird, And also the, the app has the, the, the bird call, which always is useful when trying to ID a bird. If you're out in the field and you hear a, a call, it's nice to be able to confirm the call um, using the app. And the nice thing about the app is even though it's designed to be used with a book and that you can just take your phone and scan it over and it links through to the app, it can be used independently and anywhere because it doesn't actually require internet connectivity. So I think it's a real value add. Um, It's not there to list your birds and things. It's It's really, again, around identification. So you can carry that out into the field and uh, link through and uh, look at pictures. You don't actually have to to carry the, the book itself because the text is in the app as well.
0: I think what's really fantastic, I'll speak to Neil about this, what I really love about the app is the app is only 150 Rand and that's really well-priced. That's I mean really you, comp- amazing. Yeah. You, know, you compare it to the other apps on the market and this is probably, well, is the best-priced app on the market and I think for what it offers, it's, it, it's incredibly good value for money.
2: I agree 100%. It's, I, I, it's essential uh, for the price. It's essential. Because again, the quality of photographs on the app too. And uh, having the bird sound, it's a, it's a different set of sounds to, to what we're we used to. So it's fantastic. I mean, every app <laughs> adds value, but this one really does.
0: <laughs> so I'm going to ask you the last question. This is the tricky question because let's be real. Southern Africa, we are blessed with incredible field guides. And there's lots of good field guides. I mean, for, every, for this field guide here, there's a lot of other great field guides on the market. So the question is, is why should people get this book?
2: Well, I think photography has reached a point where it can be used as effectively for identification as a plate. I mean, you think of, of plates, they, they're very static, whereas photographs really bring life to a page I mean, you can actually see how the bird looks the color and and the jizz which you don't always get in a, a plate and uh, I mean this whole layout of this book it helps with identification because you've got two photographs of the bird directly below the text and I mean we've already discussed how the photographs were chosen so this These photos will show what you need to see to ID the bird. It's not just a beautiful photograph of a bird, it's a bird showing the ID features. And uh, the other thing, they only have two birds per page. So the photographs are actually uh, big enough to, to actually see. You know, you're not looking at small little pictures on a, another page they're directly below and they're big enough so i think they the photographs are superb and are chosen so definitely the best photographic guide on the market but the other thing is the the casualness of the the writing style it really helps with the user friendliness of the book so even um novice birders shouldn't have a, a problem uh, with the with the text and picking out the key features and of course uh, the maps are up to date and uh, um, so together with the, the the photographs it's not only a resource for novice birders it's also for more experienced birders.
0: Well, Corin, you guys are done a fantastic job, and I just wanna once again congratulate you and all the other authors and everyone that was involved in the putting this book together. And it's been you've been a fantastic guest. It's been so cool to chat to you. So thank you for being on the show. And we hopefully we'll do a pelagic together one day and then I can draw on your knowledge that you you drew from putting <laughs> this. Maybe I can get your cheat sheet or something.
2: I would love to go on a pelagic with you, you know, anytime to get out there and go and catch up and get those that i need still for my list um so yeah next time i'm down in durban i'll definitely make contact
0: thanks so much to this week's guests for appearing on the show and thank you to everyone that's taken the time to listen to the episode as i mentioned earlier birds of southern africa the complete photographic guide is available on our online store so head on over to our website www.thebirdinglife.com and get your hands on a copy. If you have any questions about the show or would like to contact us and share your stories, be sure to email us on info at thebirdinglife.com or send us a direct message on any of our social media accounts. So until next week, be blessed and happy birding.